Father God, we thank you for your word. It is holy. It is righteous. It is sure. It is a solid and firm foundation. And we thank you, God, for giving it to us, for revealing your Son within its pages, for showing us his glory, for showing us a way to come to you, to be reconciled with you. Father, I pray that this word touch us in a special way, that we surrender ourselves to it, give us humility to receive it, fertilize the ground of our souls, Lord, to receive that seed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, we began last week talking about the, the breath of God, which is, which is this word. The Bible says that all scripture is, is inspired by God, and literally translated, all scripture is breathed out. God breathed this scripture is the breath of God, comes straight from the mouth of God, written by, by holy men of old, as the, the text tells us, through the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is our basis. It is our foundation. It is our, our authority. But we ask the question, but why? Can we actually trust what the Bible says, or is it just a matter of pure, blind faith? Is there any reason to trust the Bible other than, mom and dad said so, other than the claims that it makes of itself, that it is the Word of God? Is there anything, is there any reason, anything pointing to this scripture, this book, as being any kind of authority greater than Moby Dick? We must trust what the Bible says. Faith is required for sure. So yes, there is an element of faith, certainly. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, the God that this Bible teaches us about. We must have faith. The matter cannot be settled in science and it cannot be settled in history Otherwise, those things, science and history, would have the power to save. They would have the power to redeem, and, and they don't. The matter is a matter of grace through faith. But just because there is belief that is required in the teachings of the Bible, and because that requires some faith, that doesn't mean that there aren't plenty of reasons for you to put your faith in it. I gave you two reasons last week. One was the, the remarkable claims that this book makes of itself that it is, in fact, the Word of God. It is God-breathed. And number two, there was a logical reasoning that follows that, that it either all must stand because it says it is the Word of God, so every last bit of it must stand or the whole thing falls. It's either all true or it's not true at all. It's either right or a fallacious lie. And like so many things in Scripture, if you remember, we just came off a teaching about prayer where Jesus talked about the vine and much fruit or nothing. There's not much middle ground that the Bible gives us. Amen. It's either true or it isn't. It's either the Word of God or it is not. A lie. Amen. I want to look at a few more reasons this week. And I, I gave a really long introduction last week. I'm not going to bore you with that again today. If you are curious why we're going down this path, why we're laying down these, these basic elementary stones, go back and listen to that message. It's, it's worth it. I think it's pretty good if I do say so myself. Amen. And I'm not normally one to say that. 
Reason number one today. We're just going to dive right into it. The Bible is scientifically reliable. The Bible is remarkably scientifically reliable. So for the sake of time, I am only going to take a stab at, at one issue, but it is a big one. Possibly the, the biggest objection to the authority and the authenticity of the Bible that you will see from the scientific community is the, the debate over creation versus evolution and Big Bang. All right? God either created it or it just happened out of nothing. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Now, I, I take this issue because it has even made its way into the church. And there are many Christians who have adopted a view that tries to make God's word fit into the constructs of wisdom of man rather than starting with the word of God as the basis of truth and working from there. Now, I'll go ahead and apologize to you up front. Today is going to be a bit of an academic exercise. So if that's not your cup of tea, I'm sorry. That doesn't mean you won't get anything out of it. Just, just bear with me. Just bear with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. According to the Bible, which is, as we discussed, the word of God, without error, the universe and the earth were created in six literal days. Not six billion years not six ages, not six figurative days, but six days, six 24-hour periods. Every other place in the Old Testament and New Testament text where that word day is used, it refers to a 24-hour period. Unmistakably, unquestionably, the evening and the morning were the same day, 24 hours. Not six billion years, not an age, not whatever. A day is as a thousand years, so God may have taken his time. No, he said it was a day. Amen. On the first day, on the second day, and the evening and the morning were the third day. Six literal days, and all that happened about 6,000 years ago. Not 14 billion years ago. And then around 3,400 years ago, there was a great global catastrophic flood that wiped out all the land-dwelling life with the exception of those that were saved on the ark that Noah built. This is the biblical account. And it is remarkably reliable if you are not blinded by the false religion of atheistic naturalism. Amen. I call it a religion because those who hold to those beliefs, the beliefs that say that, that something came out of nothing, something came from nothing. Do you hear what I'm saying? Something came from nothing without cause. It just happened. Something came from nothing. That all life as we know it, everything that we know, all life, all living creatures sprang from a single-celled organism out of a primordial ooze just by accident. Those people who hold to those beliefs, on the whole, they are more dogmatic in their beliefs than any Christian I've ever met. Most Christians I have met are at least willing to, to look at another side of an argument. Or at least willing to say, well, I, I, need, I need to check and make sure that I'm right. 
These guys, I'm telling you, it's a religious conviction that they have to their beliefs. Just like any religion, they have require faith because they have to make huge leaps to make these arguments hold. And just like any religion, they have a God that they worship, and that God is man. To hold these beliefs, they have to ignore mountains of evidence to the contrary. To say that something sprang from nothing 14 plus, 17 plus billion years ago, to say that all life evolved from a single-celled organism that accidentally sprang out of a primordial ooze ignores mountains of evidence to the contrary, leaps of faith to support these views. Make no mistake about it. Atheism, the belief that there, the, 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 the assertion that there is no God, naturalism, Darwinism, those are religions. They require faith. They worship themselves. Let me say this. Evolution, as it is understood today, as it is widely accepted and taught in schools to our children, Theories that rely on the universe that came from nothing, a universe that's billions of years old, that life sprang from nothing and evolved over billions of years into what we see today. That ideology, and again, I call it ideology because it is not based on actual provable science. Science is something that can be measured and proven. You cannot measure and prove these claims. You cannot reconcile that with the biblical account of creation. It cannot be reconciled. In 2005, the Nobel laureate uh, in physics, physicist, smart guy, scientist, Robert Laughlin, he said that evolutionary theory is actually anti-science. It involves explanations that have no implication and cannot be tested. He said, I call such logical dead ends anti-theories because they stop thinking rather than stimulate it. And earlier in 1929, so we're going back a little ways, but in 1929, a very prominent evolutionist named DMS Watson, he wrote this. He said, evolution is accepted by zoologists, not because it has been observed to occur. No one's ever seen it happen. No one's ever witnessed it. No one's ever recorded it to happen. Not because of any evidence, logical, coherent evidence causes it to be true, but because the only alternative which is a special divine creation, is incredible. There's a presupposition at the beginning, at the foundation of the evolutionary theory that says God cannot exist. Therefore, we must find a natural reason. There are countless quotes from prominent leaders in the evolution camp that readily admit that they must make huge leaps of faith. I think it's so funny that people who are so against faith have so much faith in what they believe. They readily admit that they have to make huge leaps of faith in order to reconcile the holes in their theories, or to hold true to their convictions, because the only alternative is that there is in fact a God and that the Bible is correct and that He created all things on purpose and for a purpose. That notion is preposterous to them and it must be avoided at all costs even when the evidence is against them. It's such a huge topic and I've really, I've already spent too long on it, but I I do want to give you an example. And I hope you can follow me. So, 
This is a bit of a textbook stuff, so here we go. The accepted age of the earth and the moon, according to evolutionary theory, Big Bang theory, is four and a half billion years or so. Okay, that's how long the earth and the moon have been here. According to the Big Bang Theory, the earth was formed about four and a half billion years ago, and then 60 million years after the earth was formed, the moon took shape. Okay, so we've got an earth and a moon. Our moon is pretty large compared to the earth. Most satellites are a lot smaller, but ours is really large. It's a large satellite on the, the universal scale. Here's the thing. The gravitational pull that the moon creates on the earth, it creates a tidal bulge in the earth. So it rotates around the earth and it's kind of speeded up at certain points in its rotation because of that, that bulge in the tides. And when it's sped up in those locations, it, it goes further away from the planet. It's spiraling constantly further away from the earth. Okay? Every year. And they can measure it. You can, they can measure how much further the moon is from the earth every year, year by year, like clockwork. Well, this is fine if the earth is only 6,000 years old, as the Bible claims. There's no problem with that. This is a measurable fact. It happens. They know it happens. The, earth, the moon gets further away from the earth every year. In 6,000 years, based on the current rate of regression where the earth is moving further away from the earth, the earth would have only moved about 800 feet or so, so no big whoop. But like I said, in most science books, the earth and the moon are 4.5 billion years old. If you reverse the calculations and you start spiraling the earth back towards the, the moon, back towards the earth for 4.5 billion years, you don't even get halfway before they start touching one and a half billion years of, of backwards road, getting closer to the earth at the same rate it's getting further away. We just reverse engineer it. We've only got one and a half billion years before the two, planet, the two planetary bodies are touching. That, that makes no sense scientifically. Amen. But if you start with the premise that in the beginning God, and that was about 6,000 years ago, according to the biblical timeline, it makes perfect sense. Are you saying you believe in a 6,000-year-old earth? You bet I am. Amen. Yes, I am. Are they going to tell me that I'm crazy? Yeah, they sure will. <laughs> Do I care? Nope, sure don't. <laughs> My hope is in heaven, and I know where theirs is. Amen. It's in a textbook. A textbook that has to be revised and changed year after year. My wife's a teacher. I work at a school district. We go through adoptions every year. Every year, new information. Every year, they revise the information. It always changes. Nothing is the same except for... Okay, one, one more and i got to move on from this. In recent years, there have been many findings of these wondrously preserved, and I'm using quotations, wondrously preserved biological materials that were found in supposedly ancient rock layers and fossils. Now, there is one discovery where they discovered a, 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 a biological material inside the femur of a Tyrannosaurus rex. And it was, it was literally flexible connective tissue inside this fossilized bone, whole intact cells, blood vessels with branched. And they were like, we don't know what to do with this. We don't know what to do with this. According to evolutionists, this dinosaur tissue had to be at least 65 million years old. Because that's when the dinosaurs lived. 
65 million years ago. But the same scientists in the same laboratory do laboratory studies on biological material and can prove that it, it, it cannot last more than several thousand years. Forget millions. Forget millions. It's not possible for it to last that long. Could it be that the evolutionists are wrong about how long ago dinosaurs lived? Are you saying that dinosaurs walked the earth as little as 6,000 years ago? You, you bet I am. Does it ignore science to say that? No, man, it does not. No, it does not. Because, here's the th like I said, they're starting from a point that presupposes there cannot be a divine. If, if the divine is invoked for an explanation, then you are ignorant. We must find, and so the, let me tell you, just, just Google some of the theories about how life got here. It is acceptable to believe the earth was seeded, life from earth was seeded by alien civilizations. When in all of our searching and all of the advanced material, the knowledge that we have and the telescopes and the radios and all that, you know, Sputnik's been out there and Voyager's been out there, we've never seen signs of an intelligent life in all the universe. But they came and seeded earth. I mean, it's okay to believe that. No one looks at you and says, you're crazy. But you say that God breathed life into man? In the beginning, God created, and now you're a lunatic. You're a religious zealot. I worried about preaching this and taking this stand because, you know, people, the Christians like to try to reconcile the Bible with the world because they don't want to, be, they don't want to feel apart. We don't want to be criticized and ridiculed for, for believing this. It, we're made fun of. If a presidential candidate got up, remember Mike Huckabee when he ran for president? They, they grilled him about it. You believe in a 6,000-year-old earth? And they thought he was a crazy person if he answered, yeah, I do. Well, that just automatically disqualifies you for running for president because clearly you're wrong. Well, no, this word stands. They're, they're presupposing a beginning and an end to their conclusion. I mean, the, the conclusion is biased. The, the science is built around the already established conclusion. Amen. My point is this. There are so many questions in science that could be answered if the Bible was our starting point rather than being rejected at all cost. No, the Bible is not a science textbook and it shouldn't be treated as such. That was never the intent or purpose for it. But where it touches science... Just like where it touches life and godliness, it is without error. Colossians 2 and 8. We are warned, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And that leads me to number two. Second point today, his, the Bible is historically reliable. It is historically reliable. Reliable. Now, of course, just like with anything, just like with the science aspects of it, anything that has to do with Scripture, there are prominent voices that try to discredit what the Bible has to say. The most powerful weapon in Satan's arsenal against God's people, against the people of the world, and he will try to use this power, this weapon, is deception. And he will try to deceive the world any chance he gets. But the Bible can be trusted because it is historically accurate. 
in the places where scholars have disagreed with the biblical uh, account in the past, they are constantly having to revise their conclusions as new evidence and new context comes up. The evidence provides better context nearly always affirms a biblical account. In those areas of history where we have the most complete evidence, the most complete historical picture, the evidence always supports the biblical record. It does not contradict it. Let me give you an example. Many skeptics for a long time believed that King David was a myth. Just like they believed that Abraham was a myth. In other words, he didn't exist. They believed this because they could not find any references to David outside of the biblical text. So do you see what the, where the standard isn't taken from the Bible? The Bible is held up and scrutinized. This is the thing that has to be proved, not proof taken from it. That's backwards. That's backwards. But because we couldn't find reference outside of the biblical text to David, then suddenly now it is not within favor, not suddenly, but it has not been within favor to believe that David actually existed. He was just an archetype, like, like King Arthur and the round table. He was a Hebrew equivalent of King Arthur and the round table. Didn't exist. It can't be found outside the Bible, then it doesn't exist. And since the Bible and biblical authority are to be avoided at all cost, the Bible must be wrong because we can't find any mention of King David outside the Bible. But time and time again, when they have said the Bible is wrong, once new evidence shows up that proves them otherwise, they have to run scrambling to change their stories. And no one seems to mind that they are so often wrong. Anyway, it was historically and scientifically out of favor to believe that King David was anything more than a myth like King Arthur. And that was until 1993, when they found an inscription that referenced King David. Now all of a sudden it's okay to believe that King David actually existed. Because something outside the Bible mentioned him. The Exodus, that's another one, a big one. If the Exodus didn't happen, the whole Bible is a lie, to be sure. Interestingly enough, there is no direct record of the Exodus outside of the biblical texts, but there are so many things that point to it. And they look at the writings in Egypt and the history that, you know, Egypt, they had the hieroglyphs and they kept careful histories. But they ignore the fact that pharaohs and leaders in power and governments and empires routinely revise history to make themselves look favorable. This was a massive defeat for Egypt. It was embarrassing. Why would it ever show up in a historical record? When the pharaohs were seen as gods, how could their god make such a big mistake? It's largely thought that the Hebrews were just always part of the land of Canaan. They always lived there. They never traveled from Egypt. They never crossed the Red Sea, never went through the wilderness, never crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. They were just always there. And the story of the Exodus is just a fable that they made up to instill national pride. Well, as recently as last year, new, new discoveries, as recently as last year, they made discoveries in, in the, this wilderness that the Exodus speaks of during the time that they would have been out there. The discoveries of semi-nomadic tents and structures 
in the same places, during the same times that is referenced in the Exodus. Now, why is that important? Semi-nomadic. Because they weren't moving all the time. You remember in the Exodus, they would, they would go and camp here for, it may be for several months, several years. And then the Lord would move them to another place, several months, several years. So they had semi-permanent structures that completely corroborates what the Bible says about the Exodus. So now we're all having to change our story. By and by, more and more, new evidence supports biblical history. The Bible is prophetically reliable. Point number three. Please hang in there with me. We can trust the Bible when it speaks of prophecy and things to come. Because the Bible's prophecies have their own track record of being true. Past prophets that have prophecies that have come true, they give us confidence in the future prophecies. Now let's, let's look at the test of a prophet that's given to us in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now I, this is a very reasonable test. The Bible itself tells you this is how you test a prophet. So put, put the Bible to the same test. That's what he's asking. I think it's a reasonable test. There's nothing in it that is way out there. There's, I mean, it's a reasonable test. It just makes sense. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 20, Moses is writing, and he, he's just prophesied that God is going to raise up another prophet like himself, and this prophet will speak the words of God. He's talking about Jesus. But then in verse 20, 20 of chapter 18, he says, But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, talking about the Lord, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thou say in thine heart, how will we know that which the Lord has not spoken? How are we going to know what, what is from God and what's not from God? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not, if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. In other words, you test a prophet by seeing if what he says comes true. If it doesn't come true, he's a false prophet. Right? Oh, and we just excuse them. How many people have predicted the end of the world this year? And then two years from now, they're back on TV doing it again. And no one says... I mean, the producers aren't afraid to put this same guy on TV... To say the same thing that he said to you. I wouldn't have the guy on. You, you were wrong the last time. What makes me think you're going to be right now? Amen. The Bible says if what he says is going to happen doesn't happen, that's your first clue. This guy isn't from the Lord. He's not, he's not a real prophet. He's not a real prophet. Now, I've got to get a, a word of caution here. The easiest way to accurately predict the future is to do it after it's already happened. And that is what you find most happening today. It's easy to look at something 20 years ago and say, I knew that was happening, or I knew that was going to happen. We're not talking about that kind of prophecy. That's not prophecy. An example of that is the Bible code. You familiar with the Bible code? Oh, please. So people believe that there are secret, hidden messages of prophecy hidden in the Hebrew text. So if you can skip every 2,227th letter and it spells a name, and that name crosses some kind of event in the, in the text. It has close proximity, and, and close proximity is a wide margin to begin with. Then that's prophesying something. There's this hidden code in the Bible that it requires a, a computer algorithm to decipher. 
and knowledge of history to decipher. That's his hidden prophecy. Well, that, that only works if you know what you're looking for after the fact. It was made huge news uh, here a while back. It, the Bible code predicted Yitzhak Rabin was going to be assassinated. How would you have even known to search for Yitzhak Rabin? Rabin? You didn't know his name until after the fact. You can make anything fit anything. Surprisingly enough, they've done the same thing, this Bible code you know, process that they use with the book of Moby Dick. And surprising things have come out of it. I mean, come on. After the fact. It's easy to predict things after the fact. And that's exactly what's happening with this Bible code mess. At best, this Bible code mess is a distraction. At worst, it is a lie to, to, to draw those away from God to seek a different truth than what is in the text. A different source of wisdom. But there are people who actually do spout prophecies. You don't have to go to some computer program to get them. There are people who say, this is going to happen. There are soothsayers and prophecy makers out there all over the world. One of the most famous ones in, I'm going to say, uh, it's not recent history, it's uh, recent human history, I guess, would be Nostradamus. Anyone heard of Nostradamus? Boy, he made headlines, he had new, uh, television specials about him, all that. He would sit and, and, in a, over a pot of steam and work himself into a trance and then just start spouting out these ramblings. And, and he was clever. He would take these ramblings and write them down and then he would, he would obfuscate them himself. He would switch them around and move them around himself to make them more confusing. So that you would have to try to decipher them. That's not, that's not prophecy. Prophecy is clear. Prophecy is clear. Stringing out a bunch of random cryptic phrases and then scrambling them up so that they're, they're out, of, out of order, you know, so that you have to, have to work at it. You have to try to figure it out to, to make it fit. They'll force truth. Any people who are looking for prophecy, who are looking for something to believe in, they will force truth into these things even though the truth doesn't fit. Their predictions are so vague and cryptic that you can make anything fit. Now, I don't want to spend my time talking about all of that garbage, though. We have a prophetic book that is authentic. Amen. Amen. It is authoritative because it is breathed by God and because it has a track record of being correct about its predictions. Amen. So let me give you an example. There are many. I'm just going to give you one. Look at Isaiah, Isaiah 44. Here is a biblical prophecy that came true. It is supported by secular history. It is not vague. It is not cryptic. In fact, it is quite precise. I've got about eight verses, four, four verses to read. They're long, so just bear with me. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 24. Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself, that frustrateth the tokens of the liars, and maketh diviners mad. In other words, he makes prophesiers crazy. That turneth wise men backward, and maketh their knowledge foolish. We're going to come back to that. That's important. Verse 26. That confirmeth the word of his servant, and performeth the counsel of his messengers, that saith unto Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built at a time when Jerusalem was inhabited and had been built. 
and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That saith to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up the rivers. That saith of, this is important, verse 28, follow me here. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. See that in verse 28? He names a name, Cyrus. Now this guy would one day be the king of Persia. Isaiah is writing this, and Cyrus had not been born yet. Actually, he's writing it about a hundred years before Cyrus was going to be born. And a hundred and seventy years before he would ever be king. In fact, this was written before Israel was ever even taken into Babylonian captivity. So he's talking about a redemption and a rebuilding that wasn't even needed yet. They were taken into Bab- Babylonian captivity uh, but then the, for 70 years, and that was prophesied in Isaiah. But, and then the Persian Empire would come in and it would defeat the Babylonians. And all this is, is written in the text. But I find this so compelling that this Persian king, King Cyrus, who is in fact the one who released the Israelites from their 70 years of captivity and told them they could go back and, and rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, he was named by God and defined on purpose Defined in his purpose a hundred years before he was ever born. Verse 28, Cyrus is my shepherd. He will fulfill my purpose. Jerusalem shall be built and the temple foundations laid. And we know from, from biblical history that's exactly what happened. He said go and he provided the means to go and then they built the temple, they built the foundations, they rebuilt Jerusalem, just exactly as the scripture said. Folks, that's just one. And I only picked that one because it's quick and easy. There are some that we'd have, to, we'd have to break apart, but I mean, it is, it is like a laser point accurate for its historical prophecy to say hundreds of years before it happened, and then it just happens just precisely like the, the Word of God said it would. My point is this, the Bible's accuracy in prophecies that have been fulfilled, some of them have taken hundreds of years, but they guarantee fulfillment of other prophecies that have not yet come to fulfillment. This is how God builds trust of His people. He builds it by doing what He says He's going to do. Who am I to say, well, He's not right, or He got it right in these things, but He's not right over here? When He says He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, who am I to discount that? Number four, the test of time. No other book has been more challenged. No other book has been more dissected and more studied. No other book has been more scrutinized or more criticized. No other book has been more attacked time and time again by governments and cult leaders, philosophers, by scientists. No other book has been more maligned by social circles. No other book has ever been more scorned by artists and musicians and poets and authors. No literary work in all of human history, has ever endured more abuse and challenge. No other book has ever been as tested and tried throughout time than this precious word, and yet it endures. Every demon in hell has taken aim at this holy word. Satan has unleashed the full weight and fervent heat of his hatred to put holes in God's holy word. 
You know, he thought he had done it once and for all. He thought he had finished that fight when he nailed the word to the tree. And he hung him high for all the world to see the crucified, defeated word. What he did not know was that in his defeat was, his, was Satan's defeat. Amen. It was Christ's victory, Satan's defeat. Amen. The sovereign grace of God, the word remains. The word is risen. The word is alive and the word is well. And that same word, revealed in the pages of this book, still stands. He stands beside the Father, at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for me and for you all the day long, because we need it. This word still has a power to transform lives. It is still sharp enough to chisel away at the hearts of stone. It has a power to convict the conscience. It is still quick and powerful enough to bring life to the dead and hardened souls of men. Jesus said, the grass withers and the flower fades. You know, mountains are going to crumble. Nations will rise and fall. Nations have risen and fallen. Empires have risen and fallen. Cultures will shift like the shifting sands of the desert. Opinions are going to swing like a pendulum back and forth. But this book, this holy word of God stands strong and sure, a solid foundation. Show me any other work of the hands of man that has been able to stand the test of time like that. You can't. You can't. Nothing endures like God's word. And that only because God himself has declared that it would be so. My word is forever. And if those aren't reasons enough, dear ones, there remains one final reason. It is the ultimate reason, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what this book reveals, is Jesus Christ. Without Him all is lost. There is no hope for the world. There is no blessed assurance. There is no reason for suffering. There is no hope for better. Without Jesus, the Jesus written about in this book, all pleas for healing go unheard. It was by His stripes that we are healed. I told you last week that Jesus made some pretty pretty remarkable, unbelievable claims about Himself. He claimed to be the Son of God, that He was the bread of life, and that before Abraham was, I am. He said on the third day He would raise Himself from the dead. And here's the rub. Here's the real rub. Okay, are you, are you ready? This same Jesus that said all those things used the Old Testament to support His claims. Jesus believed the Old Testament. He believed what the Bible said in Genesis, the account of creation, and the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Jesus believed in the great flood, the great flood of Noah. I've said before that the Old Testament is Christ concealed. The New Testament is Christ revealed. Jesus himself springs from the Old Testament. That is the Old Testament, the testament, testifying to the Son. My question is this, how can Christians or people who call themselves Christians claim to believe these far out, fantastical claims that Jesus made? How can they believe in his miracles and and believe that he rose from the dead and, and believe that there is a heaven and that there is an eternity and that by putting their hope in Christ, that fantastical, miraculous, marvelous, wonderful, amazing, unbelievable Christ, that they can one day gain heaven? How can they profess all these things but turn their back on the fundamental truths like in the beginning, God? 
all of the authority and authenticity that Jesus claims for himself is given to him in the Old Testament. And if the Old Testament cannot be believed, then the Christ that we worship cannot be believed either. And there goes hope for life after death, for heaven, for being reunited with loved ones. There goes all hope for real, enduring, abiding joy in this life. I trust the Bible. I believe it is what it says it is, the infallible, living, holy word of God. And we have to start there. We cannot build on any other foundation because all other foundations will crumble under the weight of the truth of what God has called us into. Amen. <clears throat> I cannot prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that any of this is really God's word. I cannot literally take you into the throne room of heaven and give you an audience with the God and author of this book. If I could, some people still would not believe. In fact, Jesus, when he's telling the story about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man went to hell and he said over to Lazarus who was in heaven, he said uh, to God, send Lazarus to my brothers and sisters to testify, to tell them about this awful place so they won't have to come here too. And the Lord said, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe someone who was raised from the dead either. Amen. Amen. I could take you to the throne room of heaven and some still wouldn't believe. There are people that walked and talked with Jesus and they still didn't believe. This is why Christianity is a religion and not a science. We have a God revealed in the pages of this holy word and we must have faith. At some point, you must bridge the gap from doubt into belief. I can only give you the markers, the signs that point the way. There are so many of them. It's like driving down a highway and seeing 30 signs that say danger ahead, the bridge is out, but just ignoring them because you haven't actually seen the bridge yet. Amen. Amen. There are signposts everywhere. And they're convincing and glorious to behold if you'll open your eyes with just a little bit of faith. Amen. Amen. So my, my purpose in these two messages over the last two weeks has been to hold up this book, this precious book, as authority. To show you that we can trust what it says. That it is in fact authoritative as the holy word of God. Because without that as our starting point, nothing else matters. Amen. Real faith and confidence in the authority and, and authenticity of this word is what leads to real and lasting change in your life. Without that faith, you look at the Bible and you say, well, yeah, but... Without that faith, you say, you know, I, I mean it, it, it really doesn't mean that. Without that kind of faith that this book is authoritative, that it is authentic, it is true, and it has power, and it has authority, without that faith, nothing in it will change you. You won't bend your life to match a word that you don't trust. There are difficult things to swallow in this book. But remember back in Isaiah 40, 44, 25? He is the God. He is this God. What does it say? He is the God who frustrates the signs of liars, makes fools of diviners, and this is the big one, who turns wise men back. He turns wise men back. In the King James, it says backwards and makes their knowledge foolish. 
Sometimes when I approach the scripture, I look at it like this text. The harder it is for me to swallow, the more opposed it is to my current understanding, the more right it must be because he turns my wisdom backwards. Which means the more wrong I must be and the more grateful I am for the mercy he shows me. We got some tough things to cover coming. Do you trust it? That's the question. Do you trust it? And more than do you trust it, are you willing to bend yourself Shake your heads, but be careful doing it. Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You don't know what you're asking for when you say, I want to come follow you. There's hard truth in this word. Do you trust it? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you once again for your mercy in giving us this holy word that has stood the test of time, that stands every attack that comes against it. Ah, things wither and fade, nations crumble, mountains wither, but your word is here. It is true and solid. Father, I pray that you just give us a, just a sense and a reverence and an awe for this awesome thing you've, you've given us. Help us to bend ourselves to it, submit ourselves willingly, because we know that you turn my wisdom backwards and your way is the better way. Your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. Help my thought. Give me the mind of Christ. Give all of us the mind of Christ so that we can be more and more like you. Protect us as we go our separate ways, Lord. Keep us in the fellowship and bring us back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.